This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. My guest today is Peter Van Campen. He wrote a book about simplicity of life, and so I thought that it would be great to have him on this podcast to discuss the gospel's teaching on the proper use of material goods. Welcome, Peter. I'm so glad to have you joining me today. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And Peter, to start, you know, it's kind of ironic that we're having this conversation on Black Friday of all days. Um, I have the same thought, you... actually. I know this, obviously, it's not going to come out till well after Black Friday, but it is funny that this is the most consumeristic day of the year, and we're talking about not being consumers. So, Right. Yeah, I thought that was, that was pretty funny that it just so happened that we were available today. Um, obviously, we're not out uh, hitting the malls or anything, so... Um, yeah, Peter, can you just tell tell us a little bit about uh, your background and how you became interested in simplicity of life and uh, what, what first sparked your interest in it? Sure. Uh, I grew up in a Catholic family, you know, uh, raised going to church, praying as a family every day, uh, that kind of thing. When I became an adult, I went off to a Bible college called the John Paul II Bible School. So I just I continued pursuing the faith. Um, and one of the things that happened at the Bible college was they talked about the universal call to holiness, which is something everybody seems to talk about. You hear talks about it all the time, that we're all called to be saints and that kind of thing. Uh, and so I, I took that quite seriously and thought, well, okay, if that's the call for my life, then that's what I'm going to pursue. So after Bible college, I ended up joining the seminary with Companions of the Cross for a couple of years and uh, discerned that I was not to be a priest and left. But it was that call to holiness that I think, and 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 the, uh, I guess, intentional decision to try to pursue that call, that's what I think drove me to this simplicity idea. Um, you know, when I thought about what does it mean to be holy, I thought, obviously, you need to have this active prayer life and sacramental life and all of those kinds of things. But when I thought about it in terms of my finances, it was kind of just intuitive to me. You know, that if I'm spending my money on things I do not need, luxury items, uh, while other people are starving, it was obvious to me that that was not holiness. Uh, I think I defined, I'm realizing now that I define holiness as, you know, make love your aim. Love is the definitive characteristic of mm -hmm. Christians, yeah. right? Um, right. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. You, how can you love God if you don't love your neighbor? All, all those scripture quotes. And, and so I defined it that way. I'm realizing other people have defined the meaning of life differently. And that's something I'm, I'm interested in that. Some people will say, well, what's our meaning in life? Oh, we're supposed to know God and bring others to know him. Well, then their drive is going to be to evangelize, if that's what you say it is. And other people will say, well, it's to live for the glory of God. And those people might say, oh, okay, in that case, I'm going to develop my talents to the best of my ability. So I glorify God through my art and things like that. And of course, I think mm -hmm. all these things are true, but I really defined my life. I said, well, make love your aim. And since I started trying to define everything I did, am I being loving? Am I putting my neighbor before myself? I kind of kept running into this weird, I guess, interior conflict, you know? Um, I remember I was a young man and would go out to socialize, we'd go to this restaurant called Perkins. I lived in Ottawa in uh, Ontario. 
Uh, and we'd go to this restaurant called Perkins and, you know, it, it wasn't a super expensive restaurant, but just, you know, you'd get a platter with wings or whatever, you'd have a beer and you'd drop $15. And I, and I would think, you know, I could sponsor a kid in Africa through a charity. The one I like in Canada is called Chalice. Um, but you, you would know World Vision and those kinds of charities. Um, I could sponsor a kid in Africa for a dollar a day. And I just spent 15 bucks on a luxury meal that I didn't even need. It's not even supper. It's just socializing and eating. And mm -hmm. I thought, boy, I could have sponsored a kid for two weeks for half a month for the amount I just dropped on this complete luxury, you know? Right. Yeah. It became a problem for me because I'd go to like the movies with my friends and the whole time I'd be thinking this way. Oh man, I just dropped 12 bucks on the movies. Oh my gosh, that's 12 days. And so it became this issue. Uh, what happened that changed it for me was actually when I started dating Catherine, who is now my wife. I started dating her and I was talking about it and talking about the conflict. I feel, you know, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves and that we spend our money selfishly. And she just challenged me. She's like, why don't you just do something instead of talking about it and feeling guilt about your lifestyle, make it, make a change. And so I created this arbitrary uh, standard for myself. I said, you know what, from now on, I'm only going to spend a hundred bucks a month on luxuries and, and, then, you know, I'll take care of my necessities, 100 bucks a month on luxuries, and we'll see how much money I'm able to give away after that. I was already tithing, right, 10% uh -huh. of my income. And so I, to me, that was kind of the baseline. But I had hoped that by doing that luxury budget that I'd end up giving more away. And uh, that is what ended up happening. But a weird thing happened that I didn't really anticipate. hundred bucks a month is a lot when you're spending it on Perkins or the movie theater. Uh, but what started happening was I got engaged to Catherine and I wanted to buy an engagement ring and I wanted to buy a nice suit for myself and I wanted to go on a honeymoon. And then we wanted to get a house and we wanted to get furniture and go on vacations as a family. And all of a sudden, all of these things I had to discern, is this a necessity? Am I going to justify this expense? Or is this a luxury? And am I being selfish? And now I will tell you straight up, you know, we I did buy an engagement ring, not with a diamond in it. Um, my wife <laughs> didn't want a diamond engagement ring um, <laughs> because of she shared these values and, and thought, you know, why should I let the diamond right. marketers decide for me that that's what I need to get engaged? But I got her, you know, a gold ring with an aquamarine. So we still, you know, bought a gemstone and the gold and stuff. We're still spending that kind of money. Um, I don't want people to think that I'm some total radical who didn't buy a house or, or got a house for less than $100 a month or anything stupid like that. Um, but it was just that discernment and starting to ask the question, I guess, is it okay to live in this kind of luxury where we just keep buying things. Yeah. They're hard, hard decisions to make. You know, I've, I've certainly struggled with things in my own life. It's like, well, I'd like this thing and it's not a whole lot of money, but a whole lot of little things add up. I mean, like there always seems like there's, you know, good reasons to buy this or that. And, but then I, I like what you said, like you suddenly started realizing that a, a dollar was a day of feeding someone. Yeah. And it suddenly makes everything start to look different when you reframe it like that. What I think, so that, 
you know, the, um, the, I get, again, the charity I like is called Chalice and it costs more than a dollar a day now to sponsor a kid there, but it's, I, I believe it's $444 a year now. So it's, it's still in that ballpark. Right. But it just kind of gave you that standard and you start realizing that every time I buy the, the thing that I was tempted to buy as a luxury and I'm still tempted to buy is things like, I want to go to the store and buy some beer or I'll, I'll, I'll want to get a Coke. It was, I remember it was Coke back then. I just buy a Coke whenever I wanted, but a bottle of Coke would cost two bucks. And I thought that's two days of sponsorship. So I could have a bottle of Coke. It created this weird standard in me. Uh, but I started trying to live by it and started liking it. Eventually I went on, um, a mission trip to Kenya. I was working with Renewal Ministries. They're uh, based in the Detroit area. I went with Renewal Ministries to Kenya. Since then, I've been to Tanzania and Mexico as well. But when I went to Kenya, I had this real struggle because I paid for the flight. We flew through London, flew through Dubai on the way there. And I knew I was going to go through those places on the way home. I was in Kenya where I love wildlife, like to an extraordinary amount compared to other people I've realized. So I'm in Kenya. Of course, I need to go on a safari. But for two weeks, I was in Kenya doing these missions, telling people that God loves them and they need to, you know, make sacrifices to pursue holiness. And the whole time I'm thinking at the end of this, I'm going to go on a safari and spend money on myself selfishly when some of these people are struggling to figure out where their next meal comes from. And it really became a conflict for me. Uh, the it hit ahead right near the end. We were staying um, we were staying in this city on the Indian Ocean, and uh, all of the all the other missionaries were going to go out for dinner that night. And I just I couldn't handle it anymore. We had to go for dinner, right? Because if, if you've been to a poor country, you can't just drink the water. You can't just eat their food <laughs> because it makes you sick when you're from you know. North America. Um, and so I couldn't, I couldn't just eat the food. I had to, you know, get this more expensive restaurant food, but it felt so, I was so conflicted that all day I was challenging other people to live sacrificially and pursue holiness. And then I'm just going to go out for dinner to this. So I asked um, my group leader, I said, look, I, I do need to eat dinner. Give me enough money that I can find something cheap, but I just need to pray and be alone. And I went out to the Indian ocean and I live, Alberta is, uh, is a landlocked province. So I don't, I don't get to the ocean very often. So that in itself is powerful for me. I went out to the Indian ocean and I remember I was wading out into the ocean, but I was praying at the same time. And I was asking God, like, is this okay for me to go on a safari? The safari was going to cost me a hundred dollars, which really isn't that much. But I was saying to God, like, can I really spend a hundred bucks on what was it going to be eight hours of, of pure luxury? when these people are going without. And I remember the waves crashing in against me and all these scripture verses about loving your neighbor. And, uh, you know, if you have two coats, give to the one who has none and love of money is the root of every kind of evil. And it's harder for the rich man to get into heaven. And all these verses, they're just like, and I remember it was like, <laughs> it was like the waves were crashing against me and these verses were crashing against me. And it was <laughs> the most passionate prayer time I've ever had. Because I was wrestling with this, am I really going to do this purely selfish thing of go on a safari at the end of this mission? And I will tell you that uh, I did go on a safari at the end of the mission. 
What I came to was I have to stick with that luxury budget, that $100 a month. So that was a whole month's then luxury budget to go on the safari. I, I decided I had to stay with that because I knew, like, I can't just live the rest of my life denying myself every luxury. Like, I just, I know I'm not that holy and I would fail if I, if I pushed that hard. And so I said, okay, this is a reasonable standard $100 a month. And uh, full disclosure, I dropped it. I don't, I don't spend that much on myself anymore. Um, but that $100 a month, I decided that was reasonable and that was what I was going to live by. But it, it just triggered this thing in me. And I didn't even realize how emotional I was. Um, the other guys on the mission, it didn't seem to affect them the same way. I remember flying back and we're at the airport in London and just feeling this tension. You know, the airport is like a mall, right? It's tension. There's luxury goods all around me, so much to buy and so many ways to spend money. And I remember my buddy just living like a typical Canadian, you know, just buying stuff and not feeling weird about it. I remember just being like, what? Like after two weeks of seeing poverty, how can we, how can we just adjust? I came back and I spoke at a prayer group, a charismatic prayer group about my experience on this mission. And I didn't see it coming. Partway through, I started crying, like ugly crying. I, you know, one of the, one of my friends who was there said she thought I was going to throw up and I did not know that it would be this powerful emotional experience for me. Um, in fact, I used to cry every time I talked about it and it was embarrassing because I didn't want to, I didn't want people to think I was trying to manipulate them emotionally or, right, yeah. You know, and I thought of journalists who see this stuff and describe it and they don't have that reaction. Um, but yeah, that to me, so I, I had the conviction before, but then having experienced and seen people who live in poverty and I'm still in touch with some of them. And, uh, I'm sure everyone listening to this is aware that inflation is going nuts right now. Uh, maybe not everyone's aware that there is a famine right now. It's not declared a famine yet, but it's approaching famine levels in places like Kenya. And I have friends there who are messaging me and saying, Peter, can you help me out? And, you know, how many hundreds of dollars can I send away a month to these people, but still raise a family in Canada? It's, this is, it's raw. You know what I mean? Like it's mm -hmm. not, I think part of the problem with talking about living simply is that it is, it's so raw. Every time I talk about it, I'm convicted that I'm not doing enough. You know, it's I, not, uh, yeah. it's not, no. oh, look at me. I've perfected this. It's holy. There is, there's a lot that we could be doing. And if I died tomorrow, nobody would open a cause for my canonization and say, look how holy he was, because no, I know I spend my time and money selfishly all the time. That's, you know, I, I'm glad you bring that up because I think, um, you know, I, I temperamentally, I struggled with scrupulosity in my teenage years a lot. And I, I know that of course this topic in particular is one that some people can get scrupulous about. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's something we do have to take seriously. And I, so I like that you hit that balance with saying, well, you know, like I know what I can do with that, you know, that original hundred dollar luxury budget, but I can do this much. I can stick to this. I might not be able to do without any, but I can stick to this amount. So I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I certainly don't feel like I've, uh, you know, even though I'm running a podcast about, it, I certainly don't feel like I live up to it perfectly. And I was talking to someone who been living this kind of lifestyle for a long time. And she said that 
you know, she doesn't really think that it's a destination you could ever say you had arrived at. Hmm. Because it's all about, as you said, like, it's all about love. And there's always more we can give, not just financially, but of ourselves. There's always more selfishness to strip away. You know, like, we'll never, you know, people wonder, like, some of the saints, like, they didn't seem to see themselves as saints. But that was probably because with every advance they made, they saw how long the road was ahead, you know, and it looked just as long to them as it looks to us, even though they seem to have gone so many steps further. Um, but then also I was, I was struck when you were saying that about the the Coke, you know, the $2 Coke. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking one of the benefits perhaps to living a little more simply is that it's just a little more real. I mean, like the way we live, you know, in, in the first world, the developed world is kind of unreal the amount of stuff we can just casually consume without without even feeling grateful, without realizing what a benefit it is. You know, I, I like to tell people that um, uh, I think it was uh, Tib- Tiberius Caesar, the emperor of Rome, he was considered to be living a really luxurious life because among other things, he had greenhouses that allowed him to eat cucumbers every day of the year. And then to think about how we, you know, eat out of season produce without really noticing how strange it would have seemed to anybody a few hundred years ago or to most people in the world today. Um, you know, things that things that we should be seeing as luxuries, we don't even see as luxuries anymore. But then by kind of reframing them in light of how other people live, we can recover a sense of of reality and and therefore even of gratitude too, things that we wouldn't be grateful for we'll we'll suddenly notice them as luxuries as uh, indulgences of a sort when we might have not noticed that before yeah i heard someone say recently that you know if you took someone from say caesar's time or medieval times or whatever and brought them into our our homes right it wouldn't be the fancy golden stuff that they would be impressed by it would actually be the things that everyone has right even those of us living simply i have electricity I have an iPhone. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. those things would blow their minds. The the fact that you're in Denver, right? Right. Yeah. I'm in the Denver. fact that you and I can talk in real time, like it's un, unthinkable to everyone in history, the amount of things, the amount of luxury we have, the access. When you said produce out of season, like I'm in Canada. Canadians should never be able to eat bananas under normal circumstances. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, or even just like something that people really don't think much about. Uh, like I was reading this book on like medieval life, and I was reading about people's wills because that's how oftentimes how they see how people live. You know, they're surviving documents. So you know, you know, not totally destitute people, but people who are you know not very well off, all the villagers and and such. In their wills, they would itemize like pieces of clothing and tablecloths and stuff because <laughs> cloth was valuable, and then after reading that, like I was looking into like our closets and stuff and, you know, like there's just fabric everywhere. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, simple, it's, it's cheap. You know, you can, you can get uh, clothing so easily, you know, like all the, all the basic stuff of life, we've got more of it. Or even like when I drive through old sections of downtown Denver, um, there's rows and rows of little, nice little brick houses, but they're about half the size of the suburban areas that I live in. And those would have been, they went to bed for the poor. Poor people couldn't have afforded houses like that back then. So they're for the same kind of middle-class demographic that I belong to, but they're half the size of the modern houses that are only, you know, like a hundred years later. 
Right. So our houses have doubled in size, even compared to, you know, let alone medieval times. Back then, somehow lar- statistically larger families of 100 years ago fitted into houses of about half the space. And, you know, again, middle class people, people who wouldn't have been considered poor by, by the standards of the day. So, yeah, just, just a kind of a recovery of a little bit more reality in life is, I think, I think one side benefit to this kind of uh, attitude towards life. And this is why I also uh, have organized some mission trips to Mexico for young adults and things like that, because I think seeing poverty, it gives you some perspective, right? Now, when I went to Kenya, I, you know, I met this one young, young lady and she was saying how she'd like to come to Canada sometime. And I said, hey, if you ever do, you'd be welcome to stay at my house. And they started throwing qualifiers on it. Like, yeah, I mean, you got to know I don't live in a big place, but I'm sure we could find some space on the couch. And as I was talking to her, I suddenly was made aware of, no, think about her house. Right, <laughs> right. I'm like, yeah, we got plenty of room, right? Like I, I visited people in Kenya whose house is smaller than my bedroom and they share this house with four people. <laughs> and it's just, and I'm, and I'm living simply. I wrote a whole book about living simply. And yet my bedroom is bigger than the houses of these people in the world. And that's where you just kind of go, man, like I don't need any, I need food right? But I don't uh-huh. need anything, really. I, I could just continue to to give and give and give and not have to acquire anything, right? If I if I have a, a sweater or a shirt that I want to give away, I can't even give it away in Canada because everybody's got too much clothes and everybody knows, mm-hmm. right? So everyone wants something brand new. So a nice thing with going on missions is you can load a, a duffel bag with uh, your clothes that you want to give away and you can just give it all away because there's actually someone in another country who would appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I've, I've certainly talked to other people who like, they, you know, went on some kind of mission trip and then they came back and well, like you're describing, they described like culture shock, you know, uh, just a few weeks away. And then everything seems strange to them. I, I was listening to a sermon by a priest from, uh, Kenya, and he was saying he, he was talking. It was one of the gospel readings on you know kind of poverty of life and all that. And so he's speaking to you know a, an American congregation, and he was saying, you know, here here in the in the United States, when you have things you want to get rid of, you have you know these garage sales. And he was kind of like joking about how um, how when his father from Kenya came to visit him. He was joking about how, how funny it was that Americans have to hire storage units, you know, or the stuff that doesn't fit in their homes and was kind of talking about how, you know, like funny it is. And it is, is it's absurdly funny, but it uh, you wouldn't see it unless you're looking at it from, you know, an outside perspective. Only then do you realize that this is actually kind of bizarre and um, maybe we shouldn't be doing this, you know? <laughs> I met a young man in Kenya and he said, I heard that in America, you guys buy a couch and then two years later, if you don't like it anymore, you just throw it in the dump and buy another one. And I was kind of going, uh, it's probably not every two years, but, <laughs> but yeah, it, you know, <laughs> essentially. And that's, and, and you know what, um, I guess bothers me about the whole thing is, so I became personally convicted that this was the way that I should live. But then my wife and I were putting on a retreat for young adults and it was, we, we used Lent as the model. So we did uh, 
prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So my wife was going to give a talk on almsgiving. And we discovered that this is the explicit Catholic teaching. So it's not some personal conviction of mine. This is explicitly what the Catholic Church teaches, that we are to live simply um, the universal destination of goods, because, you know, if we're living in luxury, we're stealing from the poor. And I couldn't believe it when I saw that. And it, and I guess it bothers me now that um, so many contemporary Catholics, faith-filled, daily mass attending, they're not even aware. Like they have no qualms at all about living in luxury. We live exactly like our contemporaries. I think it's because we don't even know. We don't even know that this is what the church requires of us. I know. And that's, that is really bothersome to me too, you know, cause I, you know, came to realize this and, you know, it, it's, it's all over the new Testament. It's all through the writings of the saints. It's all through the official church documents. It's all there, but you never hear it. You know, um, people, you know, they talk about, uh, uh, you know, stewardship, but they don't bring out what that means. And they certainly ask for donations to the church. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, I, sorry, I want to play off that stewardship thing for a yeah. minute. Yeah, so yeah, people always talk about stewardship and they think it's maintaining the things that we've been given by God. Um, mm-hmm. But no, to be a steward means it's not yours, right? If I, right. <laughs> if I work for uh, the Canadian government had a scandal a few years ago where, well, we always have scandals in government like this, right? Where somebody is spending too much taxpayer money to go on this whatever and bring their wife with them on this cruise or whatever and they pay... You're not a steward of our money when you spend it that way and you justify it. Well, we're stewards of God's money. It's not ours. These things we have are not ours. So if we spend it on ourselves in the West and we let other people be destitute, (laughs) we're going to be answerable. That's what it means to be a steward. Yeah, I know. People like throw this term around. And you realize like it's been drained of all its meaning. It's like the most routine, like thing you can just hear and just kind of, you know, snooze through it. It doesn't raise any kind of alarms. Whereas if the word was taken literally, it should raise a lot of alarm. And there's a lot of things like that. I mean, you know, there's, there's, you know, plenty, like in the readings that comes up over and over again in the, um, in the liturgy of the hours in the office of readings, it comes up over and over again in the new Testament, you know, like it's just, but somehow there's been this disconnect where if you asked most you know, North American uh, Catholics in Canada or the United States, is being wealthy condemned by the gospel? They would probably say yeah. no. And it's just, I mean, like, I know, of course, there are people who struggle with other um, church teachings, certainly with sexual teachings on sexuality. You know, there's a lot of people who, who struggle or resist but this one, it isn't even a case of like struggle or resist. Nobody has to struggle with it because nobody knows it's there even. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's just... weird because they throw qualifiers. So let's, let's, let's grant for a moment. Let's just assume that it's true. Oh, okay. Yeah. Jesus never says you're not allowed to be rich. Right. But what does he say? He says it's exceedingly dangerous. It's very hard to get into heaven. That it's, you know, Paul says it's the root of all evil. And you just kind of go, how? We're, we're, we're qualifying all these. Oh, it's not money's the love of all, or, or it's the root of all evil. It's love of money. And then we all pat ourselves on the back and say, well, that's not me. You know, and it's, 
if these warnings are coming up again and again in scripture about how worldly wealth is going to choke the seeds that are grown, like it's, it is strange to me that like it comes up so often, it comes up way more than, you know, sexual morality in scripture. And yet somehow Christians, uh, and I don't know if this is a North American phenomenon. I think maybe it is because we were so anti-communist for so long um, that we kind of, uh, Mm-hmm. our issues or something. I don't know what happened, but Christians always talk about the importance of loving our family and being sexually pure and money. It's like, we are just glossing how frequently these things come up in scripture far more frequently than those other issues that Christians keep talking. Mm-hmm. And, and it's odd too. I mean, there are a few exceptions perhaps, but this is also one that despite all the disagreements between progressives and conservatives in the church, they both get this one wrong. It's like, um, there's no, like, there's no, like no real group in the church that's cha- that's championing this one. You know, this, this, this teaching uh, doesn't have a lot of friends and, and yeah, it's so, like, I've been reflecting on this and, and it's funny, of course, that you say, you know, like that you came up with this as like a, you know, like, this is my personal spiritual discipline when it turned out to be, um, you know, church teaching and, and you didn't know it. I think that's a really interesting way to, uh, to, you know, have come to realize this. Yeah, if, um, I guess if your listeners want to look it up, if and maybe they're not sure, or they just want more evidence, sometimes we just want more evidence for what we already think anyway. <laughs> the verses, the, the place where my wife found it was in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, paragraph 2445 and following. And it's very explicit that we cannot live in luxury Oh, here, can I just read it? Due to a technical problem, we got interrupted at this point and had to restart the recording. So if you, what my wife found in the catechism, it's uh, paragraph 2445 and following, and this is what it says. Love for the poor is incompatible with a moderate love of riches or their selfish use. And then it quotes from scripture. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure for the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have killed the righteous man. He does not resist you. And then the next paragraph, St. John Chrysostom vigorously recalls this. Not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs. The demands of justice must be satisfied first of all. That which is already due in justice is not to be offered as a gift of charity. And finally, a quote from Gregory the Great. When we attend to the needs of those in want, we give them what is theirs, not ours. More than performing works of mercy, we're paying a debt of justice. So, I mean, since that day that my wife found this uh, catechism section, I found other, other, uh, I guess, proof texts from the catechism and from saints, an overwhelming amount. 
It's been said again and again by saints and by popes and in official church teachings. Uh, and and it, I guess it was so it was so eye-opening to me because I felt this conviction. And then I noticed how strange it was that it came up in scripture over and over again and no one was talking about it. And then I found it explicitly taught in the Catholic Church. For me, um, I'm a youth minister and I'm, I'm big on only teach what the Catholic Church explicitly teaches, right? So if I suspect that the end of the world is imminent or, or I have some uh, particular spirituality that's not officially endorsed by the church, I stay away from those things in my teaching. But this stuff is explicit. And, and I had to wonder why then are all these Catholic speakers, why are, you know, why is this not, why don't people see this? Why do you go to, you know, the library at your church and there's, there's no books on this, you know, and they, but they used to have those CD racks at the back of the church and none of them were talking about money. You know, it was all these proof texts about Jesus is really present in the, in the Eucharist and here's how to love your wife better. And all those topics, which are important, I'm not trying to diminish them, but it's all the topics that everyone teaches on. And then this simplicity thing, I, I, I had to look for it to find it. Um, and we did. I know that you're uh, familiar with Thomas Dubay's works. Right, yeah. But I had to go find that. And then even then I found it, um, I found it to be a hard read, but maybe I'm mm-hmm. just not academic enough. I found it to be a hard read and not that accessible. But I found, okay, at least somebody agrees with me, you know? <laughs> right. And then no, as I would get in debates with people, you know how it is, right? I'd get in debates and, and people were like, I don't know. I think you're overstating your case. So I started looking for and compiling the evidence, which eventually evolved into a book. Because I was like, no, you need to, I think you could just read the quotes from the church, read the catechism for yourself or the church quotes or the scripture quotes. And I do not believe that you could read those and say that I'm overstating it. If anything, I'm, I'm not living up to it. No, and that's, and that's so true. I mean, it, quite apart from like, uh, you know, yeah, being alarmist about this. I mean, you know, that, uh, that catechism quote from James, I mean, James is hard stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and it's hard, like, uh, you'd be you can't really read that stuff if you're if you're wealthy as most of us would have to count ourselves as somewhat wealthy in in being you know part of this thing in the first world and not be at least a little bit nervous when reading James. Uh, but I, I really like what you said there about trying you know like this is a kind of a side point, but trying to only teach what the church teaches because i've I've been observing this that uh, you know it's it's strikingly common for um, you know, religious figures to be teaching, you know, just their own personal opinions, which might be right or might be wrong, but to be teaching it as if it's just church teaching, you know, like, and, and maybe they think it is, you know, but it's just, it, um, it leads to confusion because then when people find out that, oh, that was actually just that guy's opinion and here's somebody else teaching something that they say is church teaching, but that's just also that guy's opinion. And I think it really kind of erodes the confidence in being able to listen to church teaching and, um, trust in it, you know, it, um, I think it's contributed to this kind of erosion, erosion of confidence, erosion of unity, uh, that's happening. But anyway, yeah, I, I agree. And, um, you know, as far as, as far as the, the Thomas Dubay book, I'll agree. I mean, I'm a bit of a, uh, geek when it comes to Catholic, uh, stuff. So I like the book, but I agree with what you're saying that it's not 
not very easy for like just the average Catholic just pick up and, you know, get through. He's, he's presupposing a certain amount of uh, background. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just about the only thing out there really. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, he speaks with that. He's got a high vocabulary. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me that he was speaking, he was addressing religious, right? Like actual monks and stuff like that. And I thought, okay, well, where's where's the stuff for the popular level, for the lay people um, who's speaking on this? And so I would give talks. I'm a, I'm a speaker. So I'm a youth minister. I give a lot of talks to teenagers. Occasionally, I'll give talks to adults, and adults would hear me talk on simplicity, and they'd say, can you recommend any books? And I'm like, oh, there's Thomas Dubay. And then there's a couple of Protestant authors who've discovered <laughs> this principle is in scripture. But you know how it is, right? You have to prove that this is Catholic teaching. And, I, and I, it was tough to know what can I reference? What can I say? We'll, we'll go check this out. So that's why I ended up writing that, um, my own book, uh, Live Simply, so that others might simply live, because I just thought, it's not, and honestly, I hope that someone with a, with a bigger following I don't want to start. I don't want to start dropping the names of the people I'm thinking of because it'll almost sound like I'm bad mouthing them or something. But they they need to since this is true and it's church teaching. They need to go find this stuff and they need to speak it. And and then I, and then I don't need to write a book. <laughs> right. <laughs> Those guys have got to pick this message up. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be the youth minister from Rocky Mountain House. So. I mean, it, it's it's too bad, as you say, that like it's not being picked up. And I, I do think there's there's a lot of reasons. I mean, a lot of people are not aware of it. But I think part of it does come down to um, it's actually something that Father Dubay talks about. Um, you know, the, the church and all these different ministries that people run are dependent on wealthy donors uh, to yeah. keep in existence. And wealthy donors are giving, you know, typically a fairly small percentage of their their total wealth while still spending quite a bit on themselves. And they probably also, you know, like think that they're being generous and it's nice that they at least give some, right? But if this was preached right out, you would be condemning their kind of, you know, their preferred lifestyle of, of the, both of the majority of people in the congregation and also of these particular donors that are keeping your operation afloat. And uh, I've wondered that, and you try not to be so cynical about the big name Catholic speakers, but whatever. I I have a career that pays me, so I don't I don't need donors. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but you look at these guys, and they're like, "Oh, we're going to do this Catholic luxury cruise, and we'll talk about apologetics." And I I go, "So you just you're going to go on a luxury cruise?" To me, that it, it signifies something that. Like the word luxury used to be a bad word, right? Mm-hmm. Like it'd be right. Like, I make the joke in my book. It'd be like if Catholics were like, come on this Catholic lascivious cruise. <laughs> yeah, no, right. That's a contradiction, right? No, and and uh, I think, and even like great outfits tend to get, like there's a, there's a charity that I won't name because I think they're a great charity. But like they were doing this, I don't know what, like 200 uh, plate a meal dinner to raise, you know, funds for their, right. uh, uh you know, operation. And of course, like, so some of the funds for this is going to go, but you, to the, you know, to the actual ministry they do, but obviously if they're going to charge $200 a plate, the meal is going to have to justify that tag. And it's going to involve a lot of unnecessary conspicuous consumption in a fairly swanky kind of uh, setting. And it's just wrong. Um it's it's not it doesn't fit with what the gospel is talking about and and so Father Dubay, in kind of a funny passage in his book, 
says that um, when, so he said, let's imagine someone comes, you know, to speak about how the missions need money. Okay, so then he said, you know, this, this couple, he, he imagined this couple on their drive home saying, you know, can we afford to give anything to the missions? And he said, being that there are good, generous, you know, mass attending Catholic couple, they'll say, yes, we could afford $30 for the missions. And he said, and most people think, well, they're generous, you know, because they're giving $30 more than, you know, their usual contribution to the parish. And he said, but notice that when they say afford, they don't mean what I could have, what we could afford if we sell our sports cars or don't go on that vacation or stop buying high-end clothing or any of the other things that they do. They mean, what can we afford while keeping our lifestyle the same? Exactly. And, and like, you know, again, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think, you know, blame isn't going to get us anywhere anyway, but somehow the actual teaching of the gospel is just uh, being totally glossed over on, on this point. Well, because and one people thing, think, like I said, they think that it's, or you said this, it's that it's generosity. The church clearly said this isn't generosity, it's justice. Mm-hmm. There's justice to provide for people's basic needs and not to, you know, I, I mentioned the universal destination of goods, not to consume goods uh, as luxuries when other people don't have their basic needs fit. That's an injustice. So we're not even... We're not even being just right now. We're not even being that minimum standard. And that, I think that is perhaps one of the biggest framings that we need to, you know, emphasize because if it is just a matter of generosity, then any amount is generous. Um, You know, a person could be spending millions on themselves, but if they give a few hundreds to charity, then they're generous. They didn't need then to give it. But if it's justice, then, you know, I can tell you, you know, like you can't be, um, you know, a little unjust until you've, you know, achieved the standard of justice, you are behaving unjustly, you are doing wrong. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and that I think is is one of the confusions, certainly that has contributed to this lack of understanding. And, you know, this is something then that I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on. So, you know, you've come to this realization. And, you know, as someone else who's trying to spread this message, you've, you know, been trying to speak to audiences of various types about this, what kind of framings do you find really helpful in getting the message across? How do you find it's best to present it? What can we do to, you know, make this a little more uh, mainstream, a little more normal? This is something that I struggle a lot with for a couple of reasons. One is, see, it's easy for me to talk to you because I don't know you and we're on the same page, right? Um, when I bring this up, I'm, I was, I'm speaking at a conference in March here in Canada, and a lot of my friends will be there. When I bring it up in circles where I have a lot of friends, there's a couple things I'm afraid of. I'm afraid, first of all, that they're going to think I will judge them if I see their car or their house, and if I think it's too luxurious, right? Um, and, and there's a, a fear that they will judge me because they will realize, hey, Peter's speaking about this, but he's not actually living up to it. He does these. You know, I had one of my friends say, because my wife and I have this thing where we go for a date every month and we'll go out for dinner and hire a babysitter because we think that's important for our marriage. And my friend challenged me on that. He's like, how can you speak about simplicity and then go out for dinner once a month? You know, and it's so honestly, I don't know. I, I don't feel like I'm good at it yet. When I talk, I try to talk out of um, 
my wife encourages me to give a lot of personal stories. So I try to do what I did in this podcast. Well, here's where I came to this conclusion. And I had this experience in Africa. But then a lot of the things I'm saying in this, like, why aren't speakers saying it? Why are people going on luxury cruises? Man, I got a lot of friends going on luxury cruises. You know what I mean? And they're, uh, I, I don't know. Do I want to, do I want to go there with them? I don't know that I do. <laughs> so. Well, that's, I mean, that's something I've gotten, you know, people like, well, Malcolm, you know, like, um, you sound like a Puritan, you know, one of those handy words, right, that can be used to, uh, you know, dismiss someone who's trying to live this way. Um, you know, don't you think you're being too hard on yourself? I mean, don't, you know, like that, or yes, then feeling annoyed that I'm, you know, without intending to, but in a sense, condemning right. something that, but I mean, like, what's kind of weird about this is, I mean, like, we, we would try to do the same with other aspects of Catholic teaching. And we try and, you know, like, what, what do they always say? Uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. I mean, like, we're all sinners and we've all got, we, we've all got areas where we're failing. Right. Um, but I, I think to me, the, the hard thing is, is that because you're not in this case, in this particular matter, you're not being backed up, you know, by anyone else. You can't kind of so easily like deflect the message. Onto like well, to one of my friends, and it, it was one of those conversations that got a little heated. Uh, since then, I've gotten better at this, <laughs> but it, the conversation got a little bit heated. And the guy was saying, "Look, yeah, okay, so I have a, a bachelor's with a concentration in philosophy, and he has a master's." And he's like, "Look, I'm better educated than you. I've been in religious circles. I have never heard this. How can you be telling me that this is the fact?" And he he was getting angry. He's like, if this was true, I would have heard it by now. And I was saying, well, look, here it is in scripture. Here it is in the catechism. And he's like, no, if this was true, I'd have heard it. And then he starts saying, you're judging me. You're judging. I wasn't about him. I wasn't talking <laughs> about his lifestyle at all. I don't know what his house looks like. But it was this strange thing where he started saying, you're judging me. You're judging me. And I said, well, think about it. You're judging me for judging you. Right? Like. <laughs> Anytime you say something's a sin, you're judging the people who commit it. If I said pornography was a sin and you turned around and said, you're judging me, you're judging me. I'd say, I wasn't aware you're using porn, but I'm not going to stop saying pornography is a sin. Just be, you know what I mean? Right, right. And that's the problem is the church has taught explicitly all the way back to Christ and in every author of the New Testament, with the possible exception of Jude. <laughs> the, the church has taught explicitly that we have to live simply and be generous with the poor and that it's injustice not to. And then everyone's staying quiet because we don't want to be judgmental. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, want to and, be judgmental, but man, somebody's got to speak up on this. Right. And and that's the thing too, you know, like I, I do think, you know, Father Dubay uh, does emphasize, for instance, that this is, this is a matter of, of conscience, but of, consciences that have to be well formed as in any area you know uh and it'll look different for each person some people might you know like you were talking about that some people really might need um the hundred dollar luxury budget other people might not and and therefore we can't judge because we don't know but we have to you know present the basic principles like when i'm talking i always try and say like these are the principles and then you've got to you know use your conscience you know form your conscience and then use your conscience on your life you know um, which I think helps a little bit um, in kind of deflecting that. Yeah. You know, what are you but, saying? I really appreciate that you're saying that actually, because that is the thing is people will say, well, then can I do this? Can I do that? Blah, blah, blah. Right. And then 
like I say, they could judge me and say, so you justify a date every month or you took your family on that vacation and you went camping and, you know, and yeah, I, you know, those are selfish things that I, <laughs> I did and I frankly continue, like intend to continue to plan to continue taking my family camping in the summer. And I know that in a way it's selfish when people are starving. I know that, but we have to, we have to apply these principles to our conscience, have an informed conscience. And, and I think that's where, uh, that's where, I mean, like, obviously we can certainly see this playing out, like in how uh, Catholics relate to the church's uh, teaching on sexual morality, right? Some people use conscience as a way to say like, well, I can disagree with the teaching. So like, well, no, your conscience has to be formed by the teaching and then apply it properly. Right. Um, but like, but that of course does not at the same time mean we're all living exactly the same life. Um, and then, you know, certainly in this matter of, of money, yeah, the, the, the principle is such, um, and, and, you know, like this is a matter of justice, you know, here's all the principles and then, yeah, you'll have to apply them. Um, one thing uh, too, that, you know, like this comes up a lot for me and I, I was listening to a different interview you were giving and it came up a little bit on there. So I thought I'd bring it up here. One way also that one reason that I'm careful not to, you know, judge others harshly if they can't live in accordance with this as I might think they should is because of course our society does make it very difficult for people. We live in, in a society that is really stacked against the proper understanding of material goods, um, both in kind of like um, how people are seen and valued. You know, if someone's driving a, an older beat up car, uh, they're just not, they're going to be looked down on. If they're wearing used clothes, they're going to be looked down on. People who don't have the ability to conspicuously consume are considered to be less worthy. Even in Catholic circles, it's it's going to happen. And so, of course, that's then hard, you know, to, to embrace it. The society makes it very difficult. But even on a practical level, one of the... Uh, one of the things that people always say when when I bring this up, it seems is like, well, you know, that's nice. But if I could just, you know, find financial security, I'd be so happy. I've got all this debt. Um, you know, what am I going to do when I retire? Uh, you know, what 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 are you what are you suggesting that I do? Right. Um, and that's been a real that's been one of the the hardest challenges against uh this idea of simplicity or voluntary poverty that I've a run across because yeah, I mean, like in our society, it is true that if you, you know, if you don't save up, there's a chance you're going to end up on the street because no one's going to take care of you. I'd be interested in your thoughts on this because it's, it's a hard one to answer. Of course, I think that problem does come down to the fact that we, if we had a, a culture, if we had a society, at least within the church that was more in tune with the gospel teaching, we wouldn't have to worry about this so much, but as it stands, this is certainly a problem that we're facing. Yeah, it's something I wrestle with quite a bit. It actually came up in our, um, I have a men's Bible study. And uh, so since I recorded, I know which which podcast you're talking about there. Uh, since I recorded that one, it came up again in this, in this Bible study because we're doing Matthew 6. And it's, do not worry about your life. Look, the birds don't worry. The flowers don't worry. And, um, and then there's this other part where it's um, Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. And so the question that we had to wrestle with in the men's Bible study is, can you save, 
right? Can you save up for retirement? Can you put money away? You look at the present climate with this uh, runaway inflation and stocks are going down. Um, I, I will tell you straight up, I, I do have RRSPs. I, I, I am planning for my retirement and, and right now it's devaluing, right? It might not right. be modern <laughs> thieves, but something is devaluing that money. And the question I have to ask is if I have 500 extra bucks to do something with, and I throw it on my RRSP, would it be better for me to give that to this charity that's going to feed someone and, and, and you know, they'll get more bang for the buck and the money's worth more today than it will be 30 years from now when I retire, 20 years when I retire, <laughs> let me revamp that. Um, so I don't know, it's something that I wrestle with. It seems like, this is just another one of those places where I'm, I'm not living up to the high standard that that I feel like Christ is calling me to, right? And uh -huh. uh, in Scripture, Christ talks about the guy who stores up food in his barns and then says, "Okay, now you can relax." And, and then Jesus says to him, "You fool, because you don't know when your life is going to be called for, right?" And so Jesus calls people fools who put this stuff away. But here I am, still putting stuff away for retirement. Um, do I? Do I trust God to take care of me when I get older? Like, am I lacking in faith if I if I do it this way? Do I trust the church and the community? Do I trust the safety network that I have as a Canadian? Because to be honest, I'm never going to live on the street, right? I might have to go to the food bank, but the system would have to break pretty hard for me to live on the street in Canada. Um, and yet, and yet, I feel like I need to do this. So it's... It's not something I have clarity on. It's it's one of those things where I'm trying to navigate with an informed conscience. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, from my research, it seems to me like the gospel teaching on the one hand is pretty clear, you know, like you shouldn't, right? Um, and I think, you know, like I was, I was kind of thinking through kind of like the philosophic underpinning, like why was, you know, like the rich fool, you know, that's something I come back to a lot. Why was he a, a fool, you know? You know, there's there's a handful of harsh things that Jesus says, and this ranks among, among you know some of the most harsh things he says. So, um, and, and what kind of came to me, there's something that C.S. Lewis talks about about how uh, the devil will try to get human beings to either live in the past or in the future because neither of them are really real for us. You know, like we've only got the present moment; it's the only moment that's real, and, and only in reality can we find God. Like God isn't in the future and he isn't in the past because they don't, for us, time-bound creatures, they don't exist. Right. So when I was thinking about that, I was thinking, I, I suppose then the the man is a fool because he's living, as as Jesus says, he's living in a time that isn't his. Um, you know, in, in the parable, like death comes tomorrow and, you know, your, your all your stored accumulation won't prevent it. Um. So I was, you know, thinking through that, it's like, you know, whereas, of course, in the present, you know, there are people who are hungry right now. You might, your future need is not as real as, you know, somebody else's present need. But, of course, that's easy to say, right? It's what's really hard is doing it in today's culture. And, and um, I know my future need will never be as great. I mentioned well, that too. friend Theresia in Kenya. My future need will never be as great as her present need now. And so if I could, oh my gosh, like I'm convicting myself as I speak, and this is the problem with it, right? If you look at it, you just go, okay, what am I supposed to do really? Right. And, and yet I think, you know, you brought up the thing about faith and I was thinking, 
I was thinking through that and I was thinking, you know, like the have faith um, response is, did not seem to me to be a satisfactory one um, because it seemed to be a little too, a little too freely spoken. Right. And then I remembered something that someone had said about saying the Our Father and how, you know, like every line in the Our Father is pretty weighty when you really consider it. you're praying a really weighty prayer and the line, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like uh, this, I think I think it was a priest author was saying, we can't say that line unless we're willing to live up to God's will, because it wouldn't make any sense to wish that his will would be fulfilled without doing our level best to fulfill it, right? So, um, you know, going back to James, among the hard things that James has to say is he says, you know, the people who say, go in peace, be warmed and fed, while not doing anything to bring about their own wish, Right. So I was thinking about this idea about like having faith in God for the future. And I was like, well, we can see from Acts where like the first Christian community, they specifically said that there was nobody in need in their community. Right. Because we're not just like, you know, trusting in God is supposed to, part of that is supposed to be trusting in a community that God built. Like we, (laughs) we should have and don't have right at the moment. Um, a church community in which no one would ever be in need. So like, it, it isn't, it isn't an easy solution to whether people should be saving up. You know, I, I don't have an easy answer for my friends, but I think that the wider answer has to be that if the Christian community that we lived with, if we were all practicing this voluntary simplicity, if we all saw our goods as belonging to the others in need, well, then charity certainly does start at home and we wouldn't have to worry about it. I, um, I don't know if you know about the Bruderhof community. They're an Anabaptist uh, group and they live in a communal fashion such that, you know, they each individual works for the community all their life. And at the end of life, they don't have to worry about it because they're still just as much a member of the community they're taking care of in their old age. And they were talking about how like they usually live in like either a bunch of closely gathered buildings or in like one big building and uh, they're talking about how, like, one of the one of the tasks is to to bring elderly members of the community to the communal dining room for meals, and you know, take care of them uh, so that they won't be alone. Uh, you know, they've they've worked for the community all their lives, and now they're being cared for by the community. Right. And I was thinking, you know, this sounds a lot more like what's described in Acts than the average Catholic parish does, because if if James is saying. That, you know, when you gather for, for worship, when you gather for the mass, if there's people there who are hungry and you don't feed them, then you've just, you know, you, you've invited condemnation by his standard. It's like, well, the problem with our Catholic parishes is that we don't even know whether somebody else might be going cold or hungry. We don't know them well enough. So, like, you might, like, we each might unwittingly be bringing that condemnation on ourselves just by walking by because, because we don't know, we don't, we don't have enough of a communal presence to even know what the needs are, let alone then, you know, giving sacrificially to meet them. So I think it's like, I I certainly agree that like, we're all individually called to practice the simplicity of life, but at the same time, you know, the Christian life is not the sort of thing that's easy to live in a vacuum. You know, Christ founded a church, not like he didn't just like leave us a whole collection of, you know, precepts that we could each try and follow by, by ourselves. Right. Uh, so I think, you know, like that's that's the best answer I've come to yet. But it's still, of course, not a satisfying, concrete answer to the person who says, you know, can I save? <laughs> it's still not you know, like 
that's an answer I can't can't give, but that's kind of like my conceptual framing of it so far as it's got. I think, you know, um, we've talked a couple of times about the uh, importance of having an informed conscience and navigating. Um, what I have found, the, the three principles that I try to navigate in is, number one, live simply. We talked a lot about that, living simply. Number two, um, the church does teach that we can live becomingly. And there's this quote from Pope Leo the Thirteenth in Rerum Novarum, where he says, no one is commanded to distribute to others that which is required for his own needs and those of his household, nor even to give away that what is reasonably required to keep up becomingly his condition in life. And then the third one is beware of pretexts, because St. Basil the Great said, by a certain wily artifice of the devil, countless pretexts of expenditure are proposed to the rich. So that's what I try to do. I try to live simply, but live becomingly. It's okay for me to have clothes that isn't ratty. It's okay for me to have a reliable vehicle. But then I have to watch out for all those justifications when I say, well, now I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to do that. And uh, and after that, it's it's navigation. And you're right. Everyone's going to have to figure it out for themselves. And the church doesn't have a clear, explicit teaching on whether or not you can you know, have a family vacation or, or save up for retirement or anything. I really like that set of principles. I think they do a really good job of encapsulating what we've been talking about on this podcast. And that part about the pretext for expenditure is so true, isn't it? There's always more justifications in our minds for spending money. There's always some reason for it, so we have to be careful there, even though, as you say, it's true, we have we are allowed to live becomingly. Since we're running out of time, this is probably a good place to wrap up the conversation. So thanks again for taking the time to come on this podcast and share your thoughts with us. All right. Well, thank you, sir.